Well, this morning I want to take us back to the Gospel of Luke, and so I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. Now, two weeks ago I preached on the birth of Jesus. Now I want us to look at his resurrection. Luke 24 is a familiar passage to us. We read about it at Easter and we, we preach about it. And there's much to learn from its 53 verses. In these 53 verses, we see Christ's resurrection. We see his ver- appearance to various disciples in various places. We find out what his glorified body is like. And we see the commissioning of the disciples to tell others about him. Well, today I want to focus on a a narrower part of of this passage. I want to look at verses 13 through 35. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. And I want to look at a, a narrower application of these verses that I think is appropriate for today. So let me set the stage and the background of this so we understand the context. And we're going to... We're going to look at, at the first verses in, in Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. And we, we see here that Jesus has been crucified. And after he had died, a, a man asked for Pilate's body. From Matthew 27, we know that this man was Joseph of Aramea, or Arimathea. Now, there were women present when Jesus was laid in the tomb. And from Matthew 27, we know that these women include the two Marys. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James. And this was James the son of Alphaeus, who was also known as James the Less, not James the brother of John. And they left and prepared spices and ointments and observed the Sabbath. So follow along as I I read from Luke 24 and in, in verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Let me share a couple observations from this this portion of of Luke 24. When the stone is rolled away. You've heard about uh, what a feat of strength that would have been, this big old heavy stone rolled away. Who could do such a thing? Well, as we learned a couple weeks ago, it was an angel. Remember, these guys are strong. We know from Matthew 28, it was an angel who rolled away the stone. And remember that the angel didn't roll away the stone to let Jesus out. He rolled it away so people could see that the tomb was empty. And when the Marys and Joanna and the other women encounter the two men, 
They saw that they were in dazzling apparel. And what did they do? They were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground. Once again, we see that when we encounter angels, it's not the cute little cherubic guys we see on Valentine's Day. These are terrifying people when they're not dressed as men and come to us in the appearance of men. And these women also were frightened. They bowed down. Well, they look in the tomb and they see that Jesus isn't there. And they ask, the angels ask, why are you looking for the living among the dead? They remind the women of Jesus' own words regarding his crucifixion and resurrection. And they remembered what Jesus had said. So here they leave the tomb. They go back to where the 11 disciples are. The, the, it's the 12 minus Judas. And the others were gathered all together. And they shared what happened. But nobody believed them. They thought it was just idle talk. You see, today people still don't believe when we tell them that Jesus is alive. They'll believe eyewitness accounts of murders and burials that occurred before they were born. But they won't believe the eyewitness accounts of people who were present for the murder, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I find that very interesting. They'll take what man has to say about some event in history, but they won't listen to what the Bible, God's word, has to say. Well, Peter runs to check the grave and when he finds only the linen cloths and no Jesus, he goes away marveling. Now, wait a minute. Wasn't he there when Jesus predicted his crucifixion and his resurrection? Why didn't he believe? Why was he marveling at this? Well, in Luke 9, 43 to 45, we read that Jesus told his disciples that he would be delivered into the hands of men, but that it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. In Luke 18, 34, we're told that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was telling them about his coming torture, death, and resurrection because it was hidden from them. And Peter and the other disciples did not consider that Jesus would rise from the dead. So now we have the, the background now for what Luke tells us happens next. And this is in Luke 24, and I'll start with 13 through 16. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This first part, my first point in this is, we can only know what God wants us to know. We can only know what God wants us to know. Well, right away, we see that two of the people gathered were walking to the village of Emmaus. They had been present when the, when the women were there and came back and, and told about the empty tomb and the encounter with the angels. And two of them now are, are walking on the way to Emmaus. And this is about a, a seven-mile walk. Anybody have any idea how far that might be in Hollister? It's roughly about from Ridgemark to just on the other side of Highway 156. That's, that's about seven miles. So that's the journey that they're taking now on this day. And so while they're walking, they have plenty of time to talk about these things. And as they're walking, some guy comes up and walks along with them. Now, it's not uncommon in those days when you were walking from village to, to village to encounter other people that were making the same journey. 
And so they might join you while you're walking and talking and, and, and be part of the travel with you. Well, Luke, who is narrating this, lets us in on a secret right away. It's Jesus. So we get the advantage of being able to shake our heads in disbelief when they don't recognize him. I mean, if, if we'd been with Jesus and we'd been there to, to see him preach and we'd been there at his crucifixion and, and we'd, we'd been there at all the, the different things that had happened around Jesus, we'd certainly know him as, as if he showed up and walked beside us, wouldn't we? But yet, they didn't recognize him. Well, not so fast. You see, we go back to verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This was not a lack of intelligence or recall on their part. It wasn't because they didn't, didn't know who he was or they hadn't been with him. This was a work of God. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. John twenty fourteen tells us that at the tomb, Mary Magdalene did not at first recognize the risen Christ. John 21, 4 tells us that when Jesus appeared to some of the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee, they didn't recognize him at first either. God reveals himself to those he chooses. God reveals himself to those he chooses. Luke 22, 1022 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In Matthew eleven thirteen through 20, we read that when asked who the disciples believed Jesus to be, Peter said, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you recall what Jesus told him after that. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And we know that Jesus spoke in parables. But as he was speaking in parables, the masses that came to hear him did not understand the lessons of the parables. They, they, they couldn't pull it all together. Well, Jesus explained this to the disciples, telling them that to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. God chooses to reveal what he wants people to know. We can only know what God wants us to know. Well, my next point is what God wants us to know is found in Scripture. What God wants us to know is found in Scripture. Follow along as I start off with verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that 
They had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So imagine they're now walking and Jesus has come alongside them and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And looking in at their response in verse 17, and they stood still looking sad. They just stopped. Their demeanor is downfallen. They're just, they're sad. They're incredulous over what's happened. Cleopas asks him if he's the only one who didn't know what happened. And evidently the whole city is talking about this. They were there. They knew what's going on. Are you the only one to come to Jerusalem who's not aware of this? Kind of like going, where have you been? He refers to the things that have happened there in these days. Now, Cleopas was not just referring to Jesus' death. He was referring to all the things that had happened the past week or so. So he first tells the man about Jesus. He says he was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. He tells how Jesus was delivered by the Jewish leaders to be condemned to death and was crucified. See, Peter described Jesus in the same way in Acts 2. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you notice a, a difference in what Peter says and how Cleopas described him? Clopas speaks of Jesus' crucifixion and death, but he doesn't mention God's plan and foreknowledge. Why is that, do you think? Why do you think he didn't mention that? It's because he didn't know Scripture. He didn't know what was written in the sacred texts. Here again what Cleopas had to say about Jesus and his death in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, had prophesied of Jesus as the redeemer of his people. Anna, the prophetess, gave thanks to God and to speak of Jesus and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We find these in, in Luke. And then in Luke 21, Jesus himself spoke of the coming of the Son of Man and of redemption. Clopas then relates the account of the women returning from the tomb to say that Jesus was alive. And in verse 24, he says that some people even went to the tomb and verified that Jesus' body was not there. But despite this, they're still sad. They still stop. They're still sad. They're still crestfallen. Why? Because they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know that this was all part of God's plan. So Jesus explains it to them. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that prophets have spoken. How foolish it is to discount what Scripture has to say. Jesus has given them a rebuke. I have to wonder how often are you in need of a rebuke when it comes to being slow to believe or obey what God has told us in his word. 
How often do we need a rebuke like that? Well, Jesus goes on to declare that what happened in these days was exactly what was supposed to happen. He asked, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Well, it was necessary because God had decreed these things from of old. And then Jesus explains, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, this had to take some time. He starts with Moses. And this means Jesus begins with Genesis. And all the prophets. It means he goes right through the last verse in Malachi. When the Lord promised to send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Jesus exposited the scriptures for the men as they walked. Every week we get up here, Pastor Ron and Pastor Steve and I, we we exposit the scriptures. Jesus is expositing the scriptures. The greatest expositor who ever lived is now telling them about the scriptures as they're walking along. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures. How many scriptures can you think of that tell of the coming Messiah and his suffering and his death and his resurrection? How about Genesis 3.15, the first declaration of God's plan to deliver man from sin and death? He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or that the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham, as we see in Genesis 18.18. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. How about Psalm 16.9 and 10, talking about his death and his resurrection. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 22 also speaks of the suffering of crucifixion. Well, how about Isaiah 52, 14 through 53, 12, a, a long passage in there where we find descriptions of the suffering of the servant who is also the Christ. 52, 14 says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Or 53.5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Perhaps you recall Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus was telling them that all of scripture was about him. And I have to wonder how often we forget this truth. How much time do we spend reading the Old Testament? This is why you hear us when we, we preach, we give supporting scripture references from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because it's all about Jesus. And then this takes us to our, our next point. What God tells us in scripture is life-changing. We can only know what God wants us to know. 
And what God wants us to know is found in Scripture. And what God tells us in Scripture is life-changing. Follow along as we pick up in verse 28. So they drew drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we talk, while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So here they are on their journey and they come to Emmaus. Their walk together is coming to an end. Now Luke tells us that Jesus acted as if he were going further. He was going to keep going on the road. See, he wanted to give them an opportunity to seek more knowledge. Would they be satisfied with what he's told them or did they want to know more? See, reading scripture has that effect on people. Have you ever read a, a passage and then just have to learn more about it? What's behind it? I know this is the case with some of you because you've called me or emailed me with questions as you dig deeper into a passage you're reading. Let me tell you on behalf of the pastors that this is so thrilling to us because we want you to read your Bibles. And when you not only read them but share with us what you're reading, we know that this is what you're doing. And it's an exciting time when you call us and say, this is what I learned or I have a question or help me understand this. These two disciples begged him to stay with them, pointing out that it was getting to be the evening. Now, now, common hospitality might have caused them to ask him to stay, but when Jesus acted as if he was going further, they would not have a sense of obligation to do that because they would have assumed that he had another place to go. But the text tells us that they urged him to stay. Boy, this is spoken like true disciples. Let's keep the conversation going. Don't stop now. Come in, come in, it's, it's late, come in, stay, stay with us, spend some more time. So Jesus agrees to stay and they sit down for dinner. Now that's supper if you're speaking Nebraskan. That's a joke for John. <laughs> then Jesus does an interesting thing. Verse 30 says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. This is normally the function of the host. But Jesus, even though he's their guest, he takes this on. Now, sometimes commentators suggest that this meal was similar to the Lord's Supper, but other commentators say that it was only a meal. I line up with the fact that they were just simply having a meal together. They they were going to eat. Perhaps they were so involved in the conversation for each other that These guys didn't even think about eating, and Jesus took the initiative to go ahead and start dinner. But perhaps, just perhaps in so doing, there was something familiar here to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus. Was it the nail marks in his hands as he was breaking the bread? Did they suddenly look at his hands and and see the nail holes? 
Remember, he later shows those to the disciples. Remember in John 21, Jesus tells a, a doubting Thomas to put his fingers in the nail holes in his hands. Maybe it was simply the way Jesus blessed and, and, and broke the bread. They would have had opportunity to see Jesus doing so. He did so at the feeding of the 4,000. He did so at the feeding of the 5,000. And at the Last Supper, and if these disciples were there for the Last Supper, they would have seen it again. Either way, since God had kept their eyes from recognizing Jesus, God must now have allowed them to see who he was. This was once again a work of God. And right when they recognize him, what happens? He vanishes right before their eyes. It's Jesus, gone. Now there's a lot we can glean from this passage as it pertains to Jesus' resurrected body and to his appearance. But just like these two disciples, we're not gonna talk about that this morning. Don't overlook the import of what they said as we read in verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They didn't talk about it, say, wow, did you see that? He just vanished. That's not what they said. Instead, they talked about how their hearts were burning when they heard Jesus sharing with them what the scriptures had said. This is characteristic of God's word. You know Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And you're familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Do you know, all too often we overlook the verse right before that, verse 15. It says, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. See, it's a little wonder that the two disciples marveled less at the sudden disappearance of Jesus than on the effect of Scripture. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 16 through 20. I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 20. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter was an eyewitness to the events of Jesus Christ. But he says that even more sure of w than what he saw are the words of Scripture. His eyewitness testimony pales to what the Bible says. Like the two disciples. You see, it was Scripture that moved them, not what their eyes saw. Their hearts burned in them because of Scripture. It was through Scripture that their eyes were opened. 
For now they knew that what happened to Jesus was God's marvelous plan from the beginning. And what effect did this have on them? They didn't stick around. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now, hadn't they just told Jesus to stay with them because it was evening, it was evening was drawing near, and said, hey, come in and stay with us. Their same excitement about hearing Jesus talk from Scripture now carried them over to their wanting to go share the news. Immediately. Hey, what's another seven-mile walk in the dark? You ever been so excited about something you read in your Bible that you just have to tell someone? That's the power of God's word. And that's what they were experiencing. The two disciples hightail it back to Jerusalem and where they exchange account of Jesus' resurrection with those who are already gathered. They're all talking about it now. Now, while this marks the end of our passage, it doesn't mark the end of the story. See, while they were talking about all this, Jesus suddenly appears. He has to calm everyone because they were afraid. Then he proves that he is really there. And what does he do? It opens their mind to understand the scriptures. I encourage you to read the rest of Luke 24 when you go home to see how this all ends. So what then from this text can we apply to our lives? What do we learn from this? Well, here's some things I I want you to come away with. First, God has revealed all we need to know about Christ. He has revealed all we need to know about Christ. When Jesus explained the scriptures, the disciples on the road to Emmaus got it. They didn't need anything more. And even though they saw Jesus vanish in front of their eyes, it was scripture that had the greatest impact. Today, the same remains true. You see, we're like those disciples. We've heard about Jesus. We've seen the effects of his transforming power. But we will never get to know what we can and should know about him unless we study our Bibles. The Bereans knew this. And according to Acts 17, 11, they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was preaching was so. Note they examined the scriptures daily. The second thing, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, our understanding of Jesus is limited by our understanding of the scriptures. You know what a Dremel tool is? It's a small handheld rotary device. When you attach various bits to it, you can drill, sand, cut, scrape, sharpen, polish, grind, etch, engrave, and more. But if you don't read the manual and study all it can do, you have no idea of the power of this tool. Well, if you don't study about Jesus, you will not have even an inkling of his magnificence and his power. The power to calm and give peace. The power to heal and reconcile. The power of forgiveness. The power to overcome temptation. The power over fear and worry and anxiety. The power over sin and death. Instead, you'll go along like those two disciples, saddened by Jesus' death without realizing the joy of his resurrection and the glorious meaning of his sacrifice. Today marks a new year. It's 2017. And with the coming of the new year, many of us make resolutions. 
Often we break them in a very short time. This is why I made a resolution not to make any resolutions. Some of you might need a moment for that to, to sink in. That's okay. Instead, for the past several years, I've made a commitment. Now, the difference between a resolution and a commitment is this. A resolution is vague and often temporary. A commitment is detailed and ongoing. For example, a resolution can be to lose 10 pounds. A commitment is to eat more vegetables and less sweets. A resolution ends when the goal is achieved. When you lost those 10 pounds, you're done. You've finished your resolution. But the commitment is ongoing. You keep eating the vegetables, even though you did so the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that. A commitment involves purpose and dedication. This morning, I want to ask you to commit with me to reading our Bibles regularly this year. It is the first day of 2017. It's a good time to start. Pastor Ron mentioned the Bible reading plans out in the lobby. Darren mentioned reading the Bible. We have many good plans to choose from. Pick one that appeals to you. Commit to learning more about Jesus this year. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. I've already picked out my reading plan. I'm kind of excited about it. And if you're curious about it, if you're interested, come see me afterwards. I'll share with you the one I'm going to read. And maybe you can join me in it. And we can have talks. And we can be excited about what what we're reading and what we're learning about Jesus over the course of the year. Let me close by asking you two questions. What do you know about Jesus? What will you do to learn more about him this year? Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. Father, we know all that you've told us about your word. We know that scripture was inspired by you. It was breathed out by you. These words are your words. Conveyed to us so that we can understand Jesus Christ and all that he is. Father, I pray for everyone that hears these words. That they commit to learning more about Jesus in 2017. Father, it's so easy to just take a a devotion. It's so easy to take a small little passage. But Father, we know that's like taking the appetizer rather than the whole meal. Or reading or watching a trailer instead of the whole movie. Father, help us to read your word. Read it in its entirety, in its context, in all that it means. Not just a verse here or a verse there with some interpretation and some thoughts of men, but to let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. Father, we pray your blessing on 2017. We pray that we all draw closer to you in adoration and worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.